Welcome to the Crypto Campfire. Twenty twenty promised us hoverboards. There are no cave substitution, I guess. Mitch and the Professor, featuring special guest David Nage. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Crypto Campfire Podcast. This is the Professor and Mitch. And today we're going to be talking with David Nage. He's the principal at Arca and host of Base Layer Podcast. But before we start talking to David, let's grab that crypto news from the Crypto Gent. Thanks, Professor. Hello, Crypto Campfire listeners, and welcome to the Crypto Coaster News in a flash with the Crypto Gent. Link Rally solidifies as it prepares to print new all time highs. One million PNK bounty program ready to rumble. And Zumo launches the Great British Pound support and announces crowdfunding. That's the Crypto Coaster News in a flash with the Crypto Gent. And it's back to you, Professor. Thanks a lot, Crypto Gent. Well, Mitch, are you. Uh... Liking the green candles today? You know, I'm liking the green grass. I it's keep cutting nice. it shorter, so that's always good. And <laughs> yeah, I'm watching the green candles and they're growing, so that's kind of nice. It is kind of um, nice. It's kind of nice to see the the social media activity come back up again. We're kind of having more and more conversations. It was starting, Twitter is dying there for a little oh, bit, you know, with the, with the yeah. bear market. It's like Twitter follows it exactly. So there's right. like, you know, the 20 people still huddling around, having, having a good time. And finally everybody's coming back in. So we're starting to see people that we haven't seen in a long time and lots of new people coming in, which is really exciting. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to what this summer has in store. Oh man, you're not kidding. You know, it's just, it's, it's funny how we ride this roller coaster, you know, and on the way up, there's that excitement and there's that, mm-hmm. that build of just euphoric, feelings and then all of a sudden you start going down right it's the market starts going down and you, you get that that same feeling in your gut as if you're going down a 300 foot drop right you're like woohoo this uh-huh. is gonna be crazy and then when you get to the bottom you're like bye 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 <laughs> <laughs> except usually you're at the bottom going god why can't i buy right now my pockets are empty <laughs> right damn Coinbase <laughs> is frozen. Top, so i don't have any money left <laughs> <laughs> oh sick Well, I'm excited for tonight's podcast. David is a fellow podcaster, so this should be interesting to talk about. Um, It's always kind of fun hearing the stories of how people got into podcasting. So uh, I think we're going to go down that rabbit hole a little bit too. So without further ado, let's grab David and and get him in here. David, what's going on, man? Welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Good to be with you. Yeah, we're excited to have you on. I think this is going to be a pretty fun conversation. I think we're going to cover some good detailed information on crypto, but I think we're probably going to descend into some entertainment pretty quickly. So I was looking forward to being boring as hell because I always have to be so entertaining on my show. Damn. Oh God. Okay. No. Okay. <laughs> well, in that case, let's go. We'll pull up some charts and then you can just explain some charts to us. There you go. No. I'll be, I'll be asleep hard over here. Advice. Just wait me up when you're done. <laughs> hard pass on that one, guys. Hard pass. No live Perfect. charting. Oh, no, no, no live charting. Shit. <laughs> nice. All right, well, how about instead of that, we go back in time and figure out how you got into crypto. What actually caused you to discover the space and what got you hooked on it once you found it? Yeah, so as a lot of people know, I came from the family office world. And for those that are not familiar with a family office is effectively, it's an institution that has been around for a very long time, for hundreds of years. The House of Rothschild many years ago, hundreds of years ago in Europe came about and they were a very wealthy family and the patriarch of the family basically sent his children to different parts of Europe to be merchant bankers uh, with the family's capital and that's how they grew it. And then in the early 1900s, uh, people like John D. Rockefeller were making hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, billions of dollars in today's money and 
a lot of the people that were running that money for him or taking care of that money were people that worked at Standard Oil. And there was a lot of issues there because you would have blackmail. Um, people that were working inside of that organization knew a lot about the person's wealth and the family's wealth and their, what, what they were doing with it. And so the idea of this family office, this institution that was outside of the, the family's organization, the family's company, um, that was not necessarily run by a bank per se. And so this came about. And so I was part of this, these institutions for a number of years. And around 2015 or 16, give or take, right around that point in time, I was at a family office and one of the members of the family had made an investment in one of the first Bitcoin funds. And here I am. It was around 2015, as I said, you know, it was right around the time of Gox. It was around the time of Dread Prior Roberts. And I was like, uh-oh, um, you, you did what? Um, because usually when you're at a family office and you're kind of heading up and kind of looking at and diligencing a lot of these investments, things have to come to you so you can know about them, you can assess the risk. And I didn't really know about this. I was kind of caught, caught off guard. And you know, what happened was is that I said, okay, well, I've heard of Bitcoin at this point in time, but I really didn't know about it. And I was kind of scared because again, it was associated with a lot of negative headline risk. And so I said, okay, well, I have to obviously spend some time understanding this. So I spent about six months of my time really digging into it, not only just reading the white paper, but talking to people that were doing distributed and centralized architecture and case studies and academics from Stanford and from Northwestern, all our different schools throughout here in the United States, really trying to understand what the hell this was. And when I got that moment where I understood the idea of what Bitcoin was trying to do and the idea of distributed and decentralized networks as opposed to their, I guess you can call it their sister of centralized networks, when I started understanding what was happening with the internet that Tim Berners-Lee gave us around the 1992 period and how it became effectively bastardized, if you will, and how a few very large corporations started to become the lion's share, the operators, if you will, of the internet that we now know. I said, okay, well, you know, when I'm looking at things and I'm looking at issues that are happening with companies that are using, say, something like an AWS, you know, there have been companies over the last decade that have had massive hacks where because all of the data is in a centralized location. And if you're a decent hacker, and I don't really know many hackers, but I guess if you are a decent hacker, you can pretty much get into those systems and then you can get all that data and then you can sell it on the dark web and that's been happening hand over fist for years and years and years. And so I started to say, okay, well, this represents a liability. It's not a liability that you would see on a balance sheet. It's not a liability that you necessarily would have at a model on a lot of these early stage companies that I was evaluating, but it's a liability. And it's a liability that I think was going to get worse and worse and worse. And so I said, okay, just because of the fact that I know about that and because now I know about what's happening with distributed and decentralized architecture, I really think that there's going to be a tectonic shift towards that. And so I became really focused on the space. I began to really evaluate a lot of opportunities. Unfortunately, the, the, the family member, the patriarch of the family passed around 2017. And I came back here to New York and I was hanging out with my friend, Ken Seif, who some people may know, he's a really great investor in the space. And he starts telling me about all these things about something called Ethereum. And I really hadn't heard about Ethereum at the moment in time. And so I, I started digging into that and I started to see, okay, well, Bitcoin has its own properties. It is a you know, digital 
programmable future, you know, kind of version of gold, if you will. And Ethereum has the ability to have state. It has the, the Turing completeness component to it. You have the ability to write smart contracts and solidity on it. And you can do a lot of things with it. You know, we didn't know about DeFi at the moment in time. We didn't know about some of the things that were going to happen there, but it had properties that were distinguished and different than Bitcoin. And I said, okay, there's going to be a world where different things can happen. You have Bitcoin that has its own operating system and has its own properties. And you can now see that there's an evolution where you're seeing more things being built on top of that very base layer. Um, and so that really got me interested further into that. And I started evaluating more and it came to a point in time where I said, okay, you know, I'm spending hours and days and weeks evaluating these, these projects, understanding what was being built. I had a real thirst for more knowledge about this and I really decided that I had to uh, kind of devote 100% of my time to that. And so I made that choice uh, late uh, around uh, about a year and a half ago. And I started to write a lot um, about uh, the, the kind of intersection of institutional investors and digital assets. I started the podcast, as you alluded to, about a year and a half ago called Base Layer. And I really wanted to understand these things. I wanted to focus 100% of my time on it. And I wanted to provide a lot of education uh, to the masses out there. As you guys know, there's only a small fraction of people here in the States, for instance. I think about 5% of people here in the United States have digital assets, they have Bitcoin, they have maybe a few other different things out there. And so when it comes to institutional investors, when it comes to the world that I came from, there's about 10,000 of these family offices throughout the world. There's about 3,000 here in the United States, give or take. About maybe, maybe 5 to 10% of them have some sort of exposure to this asset, to this, this new technology stack, if you will. And so I saw that there was a massive need for education to kind of bridge that gap and so I devoted my time to the, to the podcast. I was writing. And then I connected with the folks uh, that I'm with right now, the firm called Arca, which was really interesting because there are you know, asset managers, there are hedge funds, there are VCs out there. But there isn't a lot of companies and structures out there that are trying to show an expression of different things. So you can express an interest in you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and some of the other different digital assets. You can have an expression of interest in some of the platforms that are being built, especially on the DeFi side, for instance, you know, the BlockFi's of the world, the compounds of the world, the Uniswaps of the world. And then can you actually use, um, the, you know, the underpinning of the technology to do things, to build things uh, within a firm? And so Arco really kind of was one of the only firms I found that was really looking at the complete spectrum of digital assets of blockchains, if you will. I don't really love using the word blockchains, but they were the only ones that were able to really find that were showing an expression of interest in multiple different facets. And so that was really interesting to me. So I joined about a year and a half ago and we've been working uh, really hard on a bunch of different projects, but it was really just this kind of immense amount of time that I spent around, as I said, around 2015, late uh, 2015 to 16, where I really just, established this thesis that distributed and decentralized architecture, whether it's a programmable money, whether it's a network, was really going to have a profound effect on our society and our economics, uh, economic systems as a whole. 
so all that stuff caught your interest, but what got you hooked? I mean, did you buy crypto? Um, what really got me hooked, I guess you can say, is it was my concern, I guess you can say, that we were going down a path that was unsustainable. When you say the path, you mean the path that Bitcoin was on or the path that the financial system was on? You know, I, I am of the opinion that the path that the financial system is currently on is unsustainable. Okay. Um, and we saw evidence of that, obviously, in 2007 and 2008. I was sure. working in the financial system at that moment in time. But what was also happening for the last 10 years is that there was a constant drip of liquidity coming to the system. There was always issues with companies, especially publicly traded companies, that were doing these immense buybacks that were issuing a lot of dividends that were really just kind of massaging and kind of camouflaging, if you will, a lot of the issues at bay. And so I, I saw that there were these issues that a lot of people really didn't want to pay attention to. We also had in the equity markets, we had a 10 year plus bull run. And for anyone who has obviously looked at those charts, 10 years was more than anything else out there previously. And so a lot of that steam I felt had to come out of the system. I felt that a lot of the things that were happening to keep these companies, you know, in the, in the green, if you will, uh, and consistently getting to 52 week highs was not real, that it was kind of masked. As I said, it was camouflaged. And I always felt that, and I have said this publicly on, on Twitter and some other places that the equity markets, for instance, were on steroids that it was just a whole kind of masquerade that it wasn't really actually real. And so when you think about that and you start to parlay what you now know about something that is programmable, that has a hard cap, 21 million obviously, that is immutable, that has you know obviously a distributed and decentralized network of validators that are processing the code and processing the val and the transactions, as opposed to this kind of other side of the of you know the markets that you really don't understand. For instance, why the price of Tesla got to over nine hundred dollars? Why? What really drove that price to nine hundred dollars? And, you know, those are the kind of things that I started thinking about, you know, back then. And it really led me to start to say, okay, well, we really need to have more of a transparency feature. We really need to be able to have things that the whole world can see. We can't have things under cloak and dagger, you know, you know, with some of the larger institutions where we really can't understand what is actually happening with our markets, what is actually happening with our economy. Right. So did you buy crypto? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I usually don't talk about my things publicly. Under there, understood. But, um, I mean, I'm not, I'm just saying, you know, you know I, usually people in the space um, are. I will say this I am not a no coin. Well, there you go. That's, I will say that's that. all that needs to be said. <laughs> I am not a no coin. Right on. Right on. Yeah. I mean, you're undoubtedly in it for the tech and for the movement, for sure. Mm -hmm. Done every year. There's also one other factor too. So as I was saying to you guys before we started recording, I am a father and I have the joy of seeing children that are being raised in a new system, in a new society. Right. And for instance, you know, I went to my kid's school last year when we still were able to go to schools and we still were able to all kind of see each other face to face. Remember that time guys, I, you know, it doesn't actually, it feels like a lot longer than it was. Um, 
And I went to the, the kind of the parents tell about, you know, what their jobs are and what they do. And I got up and thankfully I didn't have like a fire, a fireman before me because then I would feel like a real idiot. But, you know, I come and I have a whiteboard and I, you know, write things like, you know, Google or Amazon. And I'm like, who knows about this? Who knows about that? And everyone's like, oh yeah, I know about YouTube. I watch all these you know videos on YouTube. I know about Amazon. My mom buys me these things on Amazon Prime and they come the next day. And I'm like, okay, well, then I wrote Bitcoin. Who knows about Bitcoin? Um, and then my son obviously did because I talk about it non, you know, 24 seven in Bitcoin. Bitcoin is in his lexicon as of, you know, both of my kids are, Bitcoin is in the lexicon, both of them right now. Nice. Um, and I said, okay, who plays video games? Who plays, you know, everyone, there's about 2 billion people in the world that play games. Who plays these games? And everyone's like, raises their hand. All these kids raise their hands. And if you look at some of the kind of the ways that the kids play these games and these games, if you have studied these games, if you've seen these games, if you're a parent, you probably have some of these games on your phone unknowns to you because they download them without you knowing. Um, all of these games have tokens and they have in-game digital currencies. And my kid now is kind of stuck on this game, Fortnite, which millions of people play. And in this game, you have something called V-Bucks. And V-Bucks are something that is only in the game and allows the, the player to purchase, you know, different, you know, clothing, different avatar, you know, things, different, what they call skins. And it's a in-game digital currency. And I said, okay, our current, you know, generation, my kids that in the next 10 years, what is the relationship that they're going to have to say something like gold, something that is physical, something that is a hard asset, you know, something that, you know, my father, my grandfather, you know, you know, my grandmother, you know, people that would have, you know, gotten those assets, you know, you know, back in the day. And I came to the conclusion, and this is my own personal conclusion, but I think it's shared by others, is that this generation that is coming up, that is all mobile, that is all digital, that are gamers, I, fir I firmly believe that they in the next five to 10 years will be massive adopters of things like Bitcoin because it is something that they can understand. It is something that is in their current day, daily lives. And so I believe that it is this next group that's coming in over the, in the next five to 10 years that will really, you know, catapult uh, further into the further adoption of, of digital assets, especially Bitcoin. And so when you start thinking about that, and again, the lens of a parent really has made me a different person over the last 10 years. I started saying, okay, well, this is what's happening today, but I see obviously these kids are going to be growing up and they're going to be more of an integral part of our society in the next decade. I should start preparing now because when they come into it, it's going to be too late. So David, what are your thoughts on are, is there going to be something that comes out and replaces Bitcoin at some point? Do you think there's something that already exists along those lines? Or do you think that that next generation cryptocurrency, so to speak, has not been really, truly discovered yet? It's an interesting question. And it's something that I get asked a lot, too, from people that are outside the sandbox. And I call it the sandbox. I, we're all in this particular sandbox right now because we all know about Bitcoin. We all know about digital mm -hmm. assets. We know about different chains. And so we're in a very specific sandbox. And there's millions and billions of people outside of the sandbox who don't know the heck what we're talking about here. So first and foremost, before I say anything, you know, obviously these are opinions of mine. They're not necessarily representative of my firm, but all of these things that I'm saying right now are, are kind of my opinion. So I want everyone to understand that and be you know, aware of that. But when it comes to a, a new Bitcoin or a better Bitcoin, 
you know, it is an open source, you know, it is something that is open source. It is something that it is code. It is something that if you look at code and you look at something that is an open source project, it could be uh, obviously, um, you know, improved as we all know that there are, you know, BIPs out there that are trying to make improvements like snort signatures and all the other things that are happening within the, within the community. Um, I personally think that the way that you have it today is that it is a very defined technological asset. It is something that is, you know, programmed to do what it does. It is something that as I personally feel, and I know many others do, it is a form of, you know, a store of value, very similar to gold, but it is a technological version of gold. And so is there going to be something else out there that replicates that? You know, I think of things in probabilities and probabilities, usually you go from zero to one. When you are at a zero, that means it's not going to happen. When you're at one, you are most definitely, there is going to have, there's something that is going to happen. I cannot firmly say that there is a non-zero probability that there will not be a better Bitcoin in my lifetime. I'm 41 years old. Hopefully I'm around for a lot longer. You know, hopefully we don't have any more global pandemics. You know, I could say hopefully in the next 50, 60 years, if I'm still here, that there might be something else because technology, as we all know, with Moore's Law and everything else that we've seen over the last 20 to 30 years, technology has a nifty way of innovating and then you have brilliant people. You also now have people that are, you know, much more capable of code. They, this coding, you know, factor, you know, I learned how to code when I started getting into Bitcoin. I did a full stack. Um, and I was in my 30s and you have Code Academy, and you have a lot of other different sources out there. You have more people that are learning how to code. You have more easy capability on the tooling side, especially on different chains. The tooling aspects of different chains, you don't necessarily have to go from zero. You can start maybe at one or two and start building from there. I can't say that there is a non-zero probability that in my lifetime there will not be a different or a better version of Bitcoin. I can't say that confidently. Uh, but I can say that for the time being, you know, it is the best tool that we have been able to build for its specific purpose. There's uh, definitely something to be said about human innovation and the fact that it would be almost insane to sit here and say that we've invented the best, right? I shouldn't say we've invented the best, but that what we are currently using is the best. We probably would have said that about Netscape at the time, right? All right. I remember using MyScape, guys. <laughs> you know, I was a MyScape guy before all this other kind of stuff came about. And then Facebook came about. And I'm like, what the hell is that? I'm using MyScape, you know, MySpace. You know, Tom, every you know, mm -hmm. this guy, Tom, says hi to me every day. I get all, you know, all this jazz. And, and, you know, I even remember, because as I said, I'm 41. I'm not afraid to admit that. I remember AOL and AOL Instant Chat and all of those things. And that dial-up sound, the, uh -huh. the uh -huh. sound. I remember all that. that. You know, uh, MySpace was like, I loved MySpace because I went into MySpace with an advantage because I already knew HTML. So I thought I was a fucking baller, man. Right. I was like, I know how to put everything exactly <laughs> where I want it. And y'all are struggling. So watch right. this. Wait, wait. <laughs> now I got to ask, do you remember the horn on your vehicle blowing every time your phone rang? <laughs> oh boy. So funny story. One I don't tell very often. So my dad, uh, I think I was probably... Gosh, I was probably 13 or 14. Um, my 
Yeah, I got one of the, like the first, not the ones that you would see like Eddie Murphy using in the movies and, you know, all the ones that are in the 80s movies. But, you know, this is roughly 1993 or four, give or take. I was about 13 or 14 at the time. And my dad, my dad got one of like these first, you know, cell phones that were not in these like briefcase things. And I remember I was in high school and I wanted to show off and be like, you know, oh, wow, I've got this thing. All of these kids in my class were like, oh, I want to call this person. I want to call that person. I don't want to call this person. And I'm like, all right, fine, whatever. It's fine. You know, it's a phone. You know, I didn't know. About a week later, my dad got the bill. And if you guys remember at the time, you know, calling, actually using the cell phone to actually make calls was very expensive. And my dad got a bill for like $300. Yes, I was grounded at that moment time because he wanted to kill me because he was like what did you do and i remember how clunky they were and then i remember all the different iterations you know it's funny you think about it i'm looking at my iphone right now we rarely even use this damn thing to actually speak anymore we just use this thing as a as a mini you know very powerful computer where we can send messages and all this other stuff we don't even use it as a phone right for sure. I mean, you're Googling shit all the time and always looking at it for directions or multiple different things. It's crazy. Oh yeah. And then watching the market and talking to people on Twitter and watching TikTok. Oh yeah. A lot of things for this handy little device. Um, let me ask you this. Are you, are you on Twitter much? I don't recall seeing you too often. I am on Twitter a lot more. So my Twitter story started about two years ago. I was always a LinkedIn person. Um, I used it very early on when it first came out and I really loved it. And then LinkedIn became kind of garbage. It has gotten better now. Um, it just was not very resourceful. Um, a lot of people were always trying to like pitch you things and it was just very solicitous. And I remember I said, okay, you know, I, I was on Twitter for a long time, but I rarely used it. And I said, okay, I've heard that people are able to start really making, you know, a name for themselves. They're able to use it to really find new people and to network and to grow their quote unquote brand, if you will. I said, all right, I'm going to do this as an experiment for like two months. I'm going to go on there. And this was probably about two years ago, as I said, and I'm going to go on there and I'm going to tweet maybe two times or three times a day, but I'm going to do that every day. I'm going to make sure that I do it every day. And I'm going to kind of share what I know, you know, from the different worlds that I've lived in before from finance and now obviously with, you know, with crypto and I'm going to kind of wedge myself there. And so I did that and I went from like 50 followers to like 150 followers and then to like 500. And then I finally got to like a thousand after like three months. I'm like, Oh wow, this is actually kind of cool. Um, and you know, it's kind of that, you know, very kind of, innate, you know, kind of feeling, you know, in your brain, you know, when you get those likes, you're like, Oh, I actually said something that people like and that they're all it's, it's a very kind of chemical kind of in your brain, you know, there's all this kind of good feeling towards it, which slowly subsides. Oh, yeah. And um, when you get to a certain amount of followers, and you start getting the people that are just, you know, the trolls out there who say very nasty things. And that always happens when you get to a certain amount of followers. But I didn't, I didn't use it for a long time. But then I started using it, as I said, very programmatically, very focused. And yeah, it's, you know, it's something that I now use on a daily basis. I, again, I always try to synthesize and I think synthesizing is very important. There's a lot of people who just, you know, continue to do the same thing over and over and over again. Um, but I think it's really important to synthesize and on my show, 
I always like to say I'm not a Bitcoiner. I'm not an Ethereum maximalist. Uh, I am a Bitcoiner, but I'm not a Bitcoin maximalist. I'm not an Ethereum maximalist, and I'm more of a knowledge maximalist. You know, I have people that are coming from all different spectrums, and they are teaching me. I'm learning about their projects, but they're also teaching me about all the things that they build. And so synthesizing all of that and then synthesizing what I know about the traditional markets and synthesizing what I've learned about psychology, as you guys know, when you get deep into this world of digital assets, it can't just be about computer science. It can't just be about crypto. You have to look at, you know, the history of money. You have to look at human psychology. You have to look at all of these different multidisciplinary pieces to really kind of fit it and create a narrative that kind of really works because at the end of the day, we are uprooting, you know, years and decades and generations of, of financial systems, of societal systems. And we're doing that very quickly. We've, we've been at this only for about 10 years now. And so the things that we're doing are at light speed relative to what happened in the past. And so, oh, you, know, sure. we, you know, it is a constant process. And so, yes, with Twitter, I am always synthesizing different features and different factors, things that I'm learning from my show, things that I'm reading about and trying to kind of create some things that hopefully educate people and hopefully create some interesting debate and and kind of conversation. So of your 3,500 plus people that you actually follow, who do you find as one of your favorite personalities that you, you like to interact with? Oh, that's a good question. I would have to say Nathaniel Whittemore. Um, for those that don't know him, that's NLW. Um, I've gotten to know Nathaniel for a number of years, and he started a few years ago doing long read Sundays, where he would look throughout Twitter, and especially through you know crypto Twitter, if you will. And every Sunday, it would be a synopsis of all the different threads that different people were creating. And he did such an amazing job of finding the narratives that were changing the market on a regular basis. And I just find him immensely important to follow. You know, he has a podcast now too, I think a daily one that he does with Coindesk. And it's always just, he always has great people that are coming on, not just from crypto, but from other different feature, you know, factors of the world. And I just, without his kind of, you know, the threads that he is able to find, and the work that he's able to do, I felt like I would be kind of missing out and I would be, I would be missing on what was happening in the space. I totally feel that. I'm going to, I'm definitely going to look him up and uh, keep an eye on what he, what he tweets. I, I'm, I'm always interested in following people. There's two types of people that I like to follow on Twitter. I like to follow the, the, the no brainers, right? The the people that just like to have fun and make light of on a daily basis simply because life's too short. You got to have a little fun. And then I like to follow the people that are, that are um, knowledgeable about the space, you know, and, and have positive input towards the space. Those are like my favorite types of people to follow when it comes to mm-hmm. being on Twitter. So I, I can totally relate with, with your comment as far as, as far as that goes. So awesome. Yeah. I think the other person that I really love to follow is Jill Ruth Carlson. Uh, she's with slow ventures. Now uh, Jill used to do a show with Meltem uh, Demures and Jill has a way, she came from traditional finance too. And uh, she's been working on, she's been working in crypto for a number of years too. And I always find, you know, the way that she tweets and the things that she tweets about 
always make me think. And it could be just a one line or it could be a few different things or a thread, but it's always, you know, makes me think. And actually, um, it was interesting towards the end of, of 2019, she wrote an article, a year in review for Coindesk. And she said, you know, without, you know, kind of paraphrasing it too roughly that Bitcoin and other digital assets were only really being used or today their use effect or their uses were to really do things that the traditional systems, the financial systems, other systems out there really didn't want you to do. Um, And it was kind of almost not necessarily focusing on nefarious actions, but things that the current systems really did not want you to do within them and that Bitcoin and other you know, digital assets really allowed you to do it outside of it. And I found that really interesting. And it actually led me for about two weeks to write a reply, and which Coindesk uh, published as well too, in which I really debated her without actually debating her. Um, and I wrote that, you know, I disagreed basically at the end of the day that, you know, I thought that, you know, the system, you know, that we were building today was one that could replicate and could fix a lot of the problems that our current system has. Um, one of the, you know, issues that we, I talked about was, um, remittance and payments. It is really, really disgusting that if you're living in the United States and your family is from another country, you know, maybe for instance, uh, a country down in Latin America, maybe Argentina. It is disgusting that there are these rent seekers that take such a large chunk of the money that you're trying to send to your family, um, all for sending money electronically. They're not actually doing anything. It's all electronic. And it really, it shouldn't be as, you know, as a large percentage as it is today. And so there are different, you know, projects out there within the Bitcoin and digital asset ecosystem that are working on that currently. And there's one that's been around since 2013 that's been using the Bitcoin blockchain to do that. Um, And so I, I really, I found her to be inspiring because one, she's really, in my opinion, brilliant about the space, but two, she also makes me really kind of think and again, without actually, you know, talking to her on a daily basis, debate, you know, what she's actually putting out there. All right, David, tell us about the most recent dream that you can remember having. Oh, man, they're never usually that good. (laughs) That's okay. Um, Sometimes they're... No, it's (laughs) it's interesting because once COVID happened and once we went into lockdown, I'm here in New York and we didn't really have any place to go. And so, you know, I was pretty stressed out. As I said, I'm a father and, you know, we're all here in an apartment and it's difficult. And so I started taking melatonin, um, which has been helping me sleep. And I've been finding that they are interesting sleep patterns. Um, I've been trying to monitor my health more. I got this thing called the Aura Ring and I also have my Apple Watch. I've been trying to monitor my sleep cycles and I'm apparently not sleeping enough in the last two weeks. Um, but, you know, I guess the dreams that I have, I am an 80s, you know, I was born in 79. So a lot of my um, kind of culture came from the early 80s. And I always was a big fan of Back to the Future. And so I remember Back to the Future too, when they go into the future, and he gets out of the DeLorean. And he's, you know, wearing this new kind of funky jacket. And he's got these Reeboks. And then he's got the hoverboard. 
I remember some sort of a thing where I kind of replaced Marnie McFly and I had that hover. I always wanted that hoverboard, by the way. Um, and I think I had the hoverboard and uh, the cool Nikes that he had and some other things. And I don't really remember much, but um, I tried to think about that because we were watching this show on Netflix called Alter Carbon. And it's one of these dystopian future-esque type of things where it's very Blade Runner, it's very dark. There's different layers to the city where the bottom layer is kind of like the crap. And then you've got the middle layer, which is like, okay. And then you've got the top layer, which is for the all ultra wealthy. Um, I prefer right now and the fact that we're kind of all in this kind of quarantine to have happier thoughts. And so I think that's probably why where I... D deferred to the Back to the Future 2 where he gets out of the DeLorean. It's kind of nice and he's got these kind of cool gadgets. So let me ask you this. What are we all going to do when all of our crypto gets cut in half at the halving? <laughs> uh, well, again, this is not financial <laughs> advice. Um, and uh, obviously my opinions are my opinions only. Um, but that question hurts I, your brain? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I, I I've gone I've had the pleasure of getting to know some very successful people in my career. And these are people that have you know obviously made a significant amount of money for themselves and for their families. And one of the things I've learned from them is that the people who get caught up with what's happening right in front of them usually make the most mistakes. The people who are looking down the road that are looking far into the spectrum that you know, are looking five, 10, 15 years down the road, those are the ones that are really successful. You know, there is volatility, you know, in your life, there is volatility in the market. You know, there are people who get very scared uh, when volatility happens and when prices go down and they don't necessarily know what they're actually holding. Obviously we've called those the weak hands. Um, and it is those that really, in my opinion, and from what I've seen historically from the people I've gotten to know, as I said, the very successful people I've gotten to know in my, in my career, it is those that say, okay, when there is intermittent volatility, when prices go down, when things go down, when assets values go down, you really have to evaluate, you know, not just for today, but you have to evaluate for, again, the future. And that future can be in the next six months, that can be in the next six years, that can be in the next 16 years. And so, you know, I, I think for those that are kind of pontificating and wondering what will happening, you know, on May 12th, you know, I'm really, me personally, you know, I think my firm also, we're looking much forward, you know, much forward, you know, down the road. We have our eyes on the prize down the road. Um, and we really, we understand that there are blips within, you know, the current day-to-day -day operations of a new ecosystem like digital assets and that, you know, as I said, again, the most successful people really are the ones that, you know, look way into the future and not into the, not into the current. So what you're saying is when the crypto that I hold gets cut in half, I'll just go buy some more at the dip. <laughs> you missed, you totally missed my sarcasm with that question. <laughs> I, I was trying to get you to laugh a little bit. And I said, my question was, when all of our crypto gets cut yes. in half on May 12th, I, I, what are yeah, we going to do? Um, you know, I, I, there are people that have, you know, it's, uh, you know, there are people out there for some reason that are saying that. I don't know why. Um, but I know it's just lack of information more, more or less, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's for sure. You know, I understand. You know, as I said, 
a special event. Uh, it is something that is programmed. It is something that, again, is very special because it differentiates. It is, you know, something that is embedded in the code that first came out, you know, over 10 years ago. And, you know, I, I right. But it creates, it creates scarcity within it right. too. Right. And it, it and, and scarcity in turn creates uh, more value. Yeah. We, we definitely, we, we hope that obviously, you know, scarcity in terms of there being 21 million of them and 18 and a half million of them have already been mined, you know, apparently right. probably, you know, because of some key loss and lack of key management, I think three or 4 million of them. I spoke with Jamison Lobb a few weeks ago about this on my show. I think somewhere in the magnitude of three to 4 million of them are kind of sitting idle or don't actually have anybody claiming them or, or whatever it may be. And so you, right. know, you have, you know, a, a very interesting situation where you have a asset that is, you know, defined uh, very, very specifically to have scarcity. And to be deflationary as well. That's right. That's right. right, All right so last question for you before we wrap up here, David. You said on Twitter that you would take Marie Curie and Elon Musk for your imaginary crypto parents. So let's say you had to go out and have one fun oh, day with cool. your imaginary crypto parents. It can't be work or research or anything science related, but it's just a fun, crazy day. What do you take them on? Hmm. That's a good question. That's a good digging on there. That's a, that's a way to dig on Twitter for that one for sure. Shout out to the research department um, on that one. There, there you go. <laughs> right. Um, I would take them to six flags and nice. I would ride a whole boatload of roller coasters and have them eat corn dogs. And I would also ride the bumper cars with Elon Musk and ask him if he can make these solar and if he can build a few for me you know, in my backyard. That'd be amazing. Custom solar nice. uh, bumper cars made by Elon Musk. <laughs> yep. That was, dude, that was an, that was an amazing answer. I <laughs> love that. That was just, that was so perfect. What a way, way, what a great way to end the show. I mean, David, this has been a lot of fun having you on tonight. Uh, we can't, we can't thank you enough for joining us and we'll hope to see you more on Twitter and maybe even have another episode in the near future. I'm looking forward to it guys. And as uh, we've all been saying, uh, everyone who's listening, hopefully you're safe and you're taking care of yourselves and your families and everyone else around you and you guys, hopefully the same. Right. And hopefully we get out of this thing soon and uh, we can all enjoy being humans again and socializing, being together. Exactly. So I wish you guys all the best. Likewise, man. Thank Good you, sir. You on. Have a great night. You too. See ya. All right. Peace. Man, that was a fun episode. He's a super informative guy, and there's a shit ton more that we could talk about. We, oh my god, I know. Like I said, there's there's a variety of people that are available for us to interact with and follow and learn from on Twitter, whether it be the guy that's cracking jokes and just having fun, or whether it be the guy that's all about you know the total seriousness of what we're, what it is we're seeing happen. Um, so that, that's the beauty of the variety of Twitter and, and the crypto space in general. Yes. Yeah, and so many backgrounds, it just makes it all uh, a lot of really good conversation starters, I guess. You just find so many little pieces of, of things that you connect with people on. And I'm going down this path now realizing that that didn't really apply at all to this podcast, but I'm thinking about Twitter now, but right. you know, whatever. Exactly. I mean, it, it, it just, everything flows, man. Everything flows. Yeah, it's got its it own rolls. flow. It's, exactly. You just roll with it. Right. So it's like coin flip, right? Coin flip ATM guys. Somebody commented today on Twitter that 6.99% is way too much money to spend on crypto as a fee. And I'm like, seriously, 
okay, try this. Go to go to Coinbase and buy crypto instantly for that kind of a fee. Instantly. And when I say instantly, meaning it's in your hand and you can literally trade with it and walk away from it and not have to attach your bank account. Hmm, I'll wait. <laughs> no, if they are out of all of the ways of purchasing Bitcoin through a service, I don't know if they are the totally cheapest, but they are fucking close. Well, and sure. They're certainly the cheapest of the ATMs. Right. So go out to the bar with your buddies and stop at a bank that's not your bank and, and take out 40 bucks. That 40 bucks just costs you $7. So what kind of percentage are we talking about here? <laughs> right. That's okay because you were drunk and yeah, whatever. I needed some cash. Yeah. But why is it not? Yeah, whatever. It's a great, it's a great way to, to have a comparison though, because people do that all the time. It is. It is. Well, I think it's funny because like with ATMs and stuff, there's physical overhead too. I mean, you're still paying a store owner to place that ATM. Right. You're paying location. people to you're install paying for that it. Real estate. You're paying for, yeah, yes. for people to install it. You're paying for people to maintain it. Paying for the you're advertising. You're paying for the machines. You're, you're paying, paying for, the for the people to come get the cash. Exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, there's a lot of things that go along with that. Right. So for them to have a fee that is even still, that is still competitive with just an online broker or online, uh, over the counter purchasing service. Like, right. That's insane. It is insane. So it's actually really cool. And they've got a pretty good fee structure, believe it or not. And it's awesome as fuck to just walk up to a crypto ATM and throw your dirty fee out in it. And then all of a sudden you just get this Satoshis that appear in your wallet. Right. It's like amazing. Look at it this way too. If you're trying to get somebody or not get somebody into crypto, but show somebody how to get into crypto. Right. Mm -hmm. And you say, okay, so let's go to Coinbase. Now I need all your bank account information. I need your social security number. I need all this information that you need to put on the internet right now that you, you get this look like, are you serious? You just asked for my right arm, you know, now go to a, a coin flip ATM and say, okay, you got a phone. Cool. Let's download a wallet. Oh, you got a wallet now. Cool. Hey, do this. Boom. You're done. Hello. <laughs> so it's it's just really easy adoption um, machine exactly it's a total adoption machine so get out there you know they're these guys are supporting the space they're they're helping adoption and they support us so dustin daniel business idea call them bams bitcoin adoption machines there you Bam. go Boom. Coin flip bams near you. <laughs> I love okay, it. fine. I love it. Fine. That's a terrible idea. But no, still, it's not. Do it. Do it. <laughs> I want to see the billboards. It's tomorrow. so flippant. You know, they could, dude, that's it's, brilliant. Bam. It's Seriously, so listen, easy. They could they could tie it in with Bam Bam from the fucking Flintstones, right? So you got you got it's so flippant easy. Bam, 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 bam. Right? <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of fun you could have with that. I just nice. did. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> oh shit. Guys, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. You have yourselves a great evening. As always, we do this for you. We hope uh, you know, we hope we're giving you content that you're enjoying and keeping the day strong. So until next time, have a great night. Take it easy. Peace.